Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back to This Must Be The Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. We're starting out our third theme for Season 3. As with Themes 1 and 2, the first episode of our new theme starts with an essay by me, followed by a chat with a guest, to add their perspective on the theme. A quick recap of the arc of Season 3. The first theme was how we got here, laying out some history and context for cold climate building science. The second theme revolved around what we need to do to get out of our way. Our third theme looks at the future of building science and the residential construction industry through innovation and disruption. Innovators are the people who are looking at the world with curious eyes and poking at the why behind the ways that we work or interact with work or technology or each other. Creative ideas and creative solutions come from creative people. Science is full of creative people. Tech is full of creative people. Construction is full of creative people. Creative people often have minds that work in different ways than what we think is normal. I often wonder what is normal. And maybe, is a neurodivergent brain, one with ADHD, for example, actually an asset? The Disruptors documentary looks at a growing number of innovators, entrepreneurs, CEOs, Olympic athletes, and award-winning artists who have recently disclosed that their ADHD, managed effectively, has played a vital role in their success. So creative people innovate, and innovation brings change. A disruptor prevents something, a system, process, or event, from continuing as usual or as expected. This can be a good thing or a bad thing. In health, it's often a negative impact, like hormone disruptors. In business, it's usually positive, bringing new and effective change. But disruptors don't just change things. They can entirely displace existing companies and industries, like Apple did with the iPod. I was recently reading through a list of the top 50 disruptors in business. 90% of them are high-tech Silicon Valley replicants, you know, doing cyber services, or robotics, or autonomous vehicle tech. There are exactly two that relate to construction. Carbon cure, yay Nova Scotia, sequestering carbon dioxide in concrete, and block power out of the U.S., building and renovating for energy conservation at the city scale. Regardless of the industry, disruptors use or develop innovative technologies or operations that are more effective or more efficient. But it's not an even playing field. More white men get funding from venture capitalists than any other segment of the population combined, and they're definitely not the only ones who have good ideas. The thing is, if you're relying on a set demographic to lead your innovation, you're going to end up with implicit bias. Look no further than personal protective gear, which is all modeled on an able-bodied white male body. Another example is machine learning or artificial intelligence systems. Artificial intelligence, also called AI, has many potential uses. The thing is, these technologies need vast amount of data to learn, and the data fed to them and the algorithms they use to predict and learn are subject to the bias of developers. If you're interested in finding out more about implicit bias and the role it plays in machine learning, go get yourself a copy of You Look Like a Thing and I Love You by AI expert Janelle Shane, It's a fun, in-depth look at the pitfalls and promises of AI. Going back to disruptors. Fidelity, a major investment firm based in the U.S., recently identified five key areas of disruption that they are seeing significant investment in. Automation, communications, finance, medicine, 
and technology. The sectors of the economy that have the biggest growth in automation and robotics are healthcare, retail, supply chain and logistics, and customer service. COVID lockdowns and work-from-home mandates have meant there's been a massive acceleration in digital services, automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence. A recent report from Deloitte showed that 73% of organizations worldwide now use automation technologies. That's up from 58% pre-COVID, you know, 2019, three years ago. That's pretty impressive. There's always lots of news about new materials and technologies for use in constructing and renovating houses, whether it be eco-friendly, recycled, recyclable, innovations in air barrier materials and installation methods, higher efficiency equipment that you can control and monitor via your phone and the Internet of Things. But what about the construction industry itself? Where can we see automation? Obviously, a lot of work in the residential sector is hands-on, site-built, bespoke, on the tools. Hard to pop into an automated process. However, we leave a lot of money on the table in non-automated processes. The Deloitte report points out that on top of reduced operating costs, automation can give you improved quality, better productivity, increased flexibility, and faster service. And those are all huge benefits for so much of our industry, where you don't make money unless you're on the tools, and customer success is key to referrals. So what are we doing? Well, we're using drones for site and building audits, as well as monitoring productivity. There's a boom in modular construction. We've got 3D printed houses, building capture and laser scanning that feeds into building information modeling. These automations help contractors and project managers make more timely and informed decisions based on cost and labor data in real time. What else? Oh, we've got wearable tech that can keep track of how much time has been spent on the job site, which, you know, has good and bad implications. Builders have long adopted automation for administration tasks, books, invoicing, estimating, project management, scheduling, stock inventory. CAD drawings are shared in real time and uploaded to cloud-based drives and can be imported into other platforms and software for such tasks as energy analysis, estimating, and project management. For me, one of the most interesting trends in AI for construction is predictive analytics. Let's look at another automation product that disrupted our industry a while ago and is now considered an industry standard, at least in large-scale commercial and industrial construction, building information management systems, or BIM for short. These systems digitally manage construction projects from drawing to commissioning and can result in up to 20% cost reduction by automating tasks and workflows. That's a considerable improvement, but predictive analytics can take these benefits even further, flagging when specific materials will need to be ordered or identifying patterns of safety issues common to job sites or bottlenecks in phases of particular jobs. Every builder and every project can benefit from cost and resource savings, improving efficiency and shortening project life cycles, as well as improving scheduling and coordination. Are a lot of small builders using BIM? I don't know. It's standard in architects and engineers' offices, and I work with EAs and contractors using Revit and SketchUp Pro all the time, but that's a small slice of the pie. But here's the thing. Established BIM platforms are available in a subscription model for under 200 bucks a month. Think about how BIM can be used on site. All contractors can access information about the project in real time, so they can work from the most up-to-date plans and workflows. Problems or scheduling challenges can be flagged early, even before construction begins. For a couple of hundred bucks a month, that's a great return on investment once you get past the learning curve, but there's no pain, no gain, though, eh? When it comes to energy modeling, the biggest complaint in the field is how much time it takes to generate a house file in HOT 2000. Volta Research, through a contribution agreement with Enercan, is currently beta testing a web-based tool that will automate comparison runs of HOT 2000, along with a whole bunch of other bells and whistles. I recently had a quick preview of it with my work with the CHBA's Net Zero Renovation Initiative, and all I can say is, where have you been all of my life? So let's turn to something else in terms of automation. Builders and trades are rightfully proud of their skill sets, and as we move forward, some workers will be displaced by automation. 
But who's really at risk for job transformation when it comes to automation? According to U.S. stats, building professions and jobs are probably in the least likely to become fully automated realm. Stats Canada indicates that the share of construction workers predicted to be at high risk of job automation make up about 8% of the industry versus 28% for manufacturing. Stats Canada also reports that occupations facing above average risks for automation related to job transformations are primarily clerks, sales reps, and people providing customer and personal services, as well as, and I quote, various trades. Interestingly, there wasn't a big gap between the risk to men and to women, likely because more women work in office support and more men work in industrial, electrical, and construction trades. One of the other key pieces I pulled out of this report is that workers with trades and apprentice certificates have a higher risk of job transformation than those who have post-secondary degrees. According to Susan Shelton's reporting with the Shelton Report, Construction is currently second to last in terms of adopting automation and tech enhancements, so we really probably don't have too much of a panic. The only industry that's worse in terms of tech adoption is the hunting and fishing industry. Where do I see automation going? Well, predictable physical activities have high potential to be fully automated, meaning panelized and modular construction is on the rise. Site-built custom homes and bespoke renovations fall outside of the fully automated realm, obviously, and every panelized or modular house built in a factory has to be assembled in some fashion on site, so fully automated in our realm is not really a thing. But what about site-based automations? We can anticipate that workers' safety, productivity, and tenure in their jobs can be improved by some really cool innovations that could easily and fantastically disrupt the home construction and renovation industry. I know it's a point of pride to be strong, able-bodied, and, f- and physically skilled as a contractor or a tradesperson, but that's often a double-edged sword. Repetitive stress injuries are very high. There are many accidents because of f- poorly fitted PPE or non-enforcement of safety protocols or gear. On top of all that, There's the driving force of the speed of productivity. And there's an overarching culture of machismo in the industry that doesn't allow men to be safe, to feel pain, or or acknowledge industry. You know what I'm talking about. A real man doesn't need to wear a harness. I'm only running this off for a minute. I don't need any ear ear protection. That's going to waste my time. Avoidable accidents and injuries happen because of the culture of our industry. Let's do a bit of a deep dive. According to the Association of Workers' Compensation Boards of Canada, work-related injuries and diseases in 2021 resulted in over 250,000 accepted claims. Trades-related injury claims are by far the biggest sector, accounting for more than one-third of all accepted claims across all industries. And the stats are very similar for the U.S. The number one claim for construction? Fall injuries. This is followed closely by job-related illness or disease brought on by physical, chemical, or biological contaminants, such as asbestos. And note, this could increase exponentially as we scale up renovations. And it also includes noise-induced permanent hearing loss. The next hazard, getting hit by moving vehicles, followed by getting crushed by heavy equipment or unsecured loads. Rounding out the top five claims on the list, is ergonomics, which lead to musculoskeletal disorders, also known as MSDs, and you might know them as strain injuries. The thing is that damaged bodies lead to chronic pain, which leads to drugs being prescribed to curb pain after an injury. According to the National Association of Home Builders in the U.S., construction trades have the very dubious honor of having nearly double the rate of substance abuse disorders than the general population and account for nearly 25% of fatal opioid overdoses among all workers. Canadian stats show that construction occupations have the highest proportional mortality for both heroin and prescription opioids out of 26 occupational groups. Here's a quick tour of Canada's stats on opioid deaths for 2021. In BC, 
44% of the people were, who died of opioid overdoses were employed at the time of their death, and more than half of those worked in the trades and transport industry. The vast majority were men in their 30s and 40s. Ontario, nearly one in 13 overdose deaths were people with employment history in the construction industry. Two-thirds of those were between 25 and 44 years old. The Construction Industry Rehab Plan, CIRP, notes that one in three construction workers reported problematic substance abuse, and one in two stated they were struggling with mental health issues. Out of that study, the Vancouver Island Construction Association developed three profiles related to substance abuse. First, somebody who started construction when young began using drugs and alcohol for fun as part of a work-hard-play-hard mentality. Profile number two, someone who works in construction, sustained an injury, and was prescribed opiates for pain management. Profile three, someone who experienced severe trauma and began using drugs to cope and then joined the construction industry, often as a laborer, to have flexible, low-barrier work. Any of these sound like people you know? The thing is, is that young men are dying because of pain from job site or job-related injury that's driven by a brutal, suck-it-up-princess culture. This is who we have to change the home-building industry for. These humans are not replaceable. They are skilled, clever, creative, valuable because of the work they do. But first and foremost, they're valuable because they are humans and they are members of society. We've classed them as essential workers even. So imagine reducing repetitive strain injuries, avoiding or eliminating chronic pain and opioid addiction, while at the same time employers can bank on reducing absences and early retirement. I'm talking robotics, but not beep boop beep boop robots. I'm talking Iron Man-like exoskeletons and assistive devices they're so awesome. I am in love, and I want every single one of them. For example, Hilti has a shoulder harness to ease strain from overhead work. Drywall ceilings, anyone? Nuni, a Swiss startup, has a chairless seat to ease knee and hip strain. This wearable exoskeleton allows users to walk around freely, but have instant support once they get into a bending, squatting, or crouching position. I mean, just even talking about it, my knees feel better. The thing is that these assistive devices are not for weak bodies. They give you power. They increase the labor force pool beyond the traditional able-bodied male cohort. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, for everybody, right? I like to talk about automation and robotics because I value the people who work in this industry and their ability to do their job and to do it safely without immediate or ongoing damage to their bodies. And the thing is, we already use automation. There's absolutely no shame in this. I mean, who's down with using a hammer and nails out of a bucket versus a nail gun? We just need to be clearer about what the benefits are and who they are for. Because automated tools like nail guns decrease fatigue and increase productivity. So how much more can we expect from robotics and assistive devices like these? And the cool thing is that established companies like Hilti and startups like Nuni are providing us with key disruptors for the construction industry. So these technology advances are corporate-based, as are all the unicorn disruptors that we all know and love or maybe hate, like Apple, Tesla, bunch of other Silicon Valley dudes. But what about those who are on the ground, in the field, doing work that disrupts the status quo at the community level? They don't often get accolades because we, as a collective, have redefined some words, or at least created a narrative around them. Startup is one of them. A startup business is exactly that, right? A business that is started. But I bet when I said startup, you thought of a tech company striving for venture capital funding so they can be the next unicorn. Entrepreneur is also in the mix with a similar narrative. The residential construction industry is made up in the major part by entrepreneurs. We have a huge number of trade and contractor micro-businesses and small businesses that create a web of support for each other. 
and feed larger corporations. So how does a small business owner, whose revenue is dependent on being on the tools, wrap their head around all of this innovation and automation if they're the one who has to stay on the tools while also trying to figure out how they can manage all of this cool automation. This is the single biggest challenge we face in our industry. We're atomized and siloed and focused on the job at hand, sometimes just for survival, and other times because there is so much demand for our services that we can't keep up with ourselves and have to turn work down, which also means you can't take on anything else in terms of a learning curve. My upcoming guests tell their experiences as boots-on-the-ground innovators and disruptors. Two of my guests are working on distinctly different business models to help cut down learning curves. Kendall Ansel is working on a franchise system for renovators that would set up a framework for business logistics and diversity to bring more women into the field as business owners. Lori Rand is working on an initiative to share information on deep energy retrofits through the Creative Commons creating an open-source hub of information and knowledge for designers, renovators, contractors, and other industry players focused on scaling up exterior deep energy retrofits. Chris Magwood, one of the leading innovators working in decarbonization, will talk about BEAM, the carbon calculator recently launched by Builders for Climate Action. And here's a fun fact. BEAM started as a spreadsheet developed by Chris to assist with his master's thesis project at Trent University. Jody Hutner founded HelgaWare to address the real-world safety and privacy concerns she experienced as a woman in the field wearing ill-fitting PPE. She's also working to change safety policies that clarify PPE needs based on more diverse body data. Shay Bulmer, a home builder in BC, took advantage of Enercan's LEAP program, that's the Local Energy Efficiency Partnerships program, and reinvented his whole business model based on builder-centric programming that provided him with the guidance and support he needed to move into net zero construction with a really easy learning curve. There's tons of other innovations out there, including virtual audits, community scale audits, cost-benefit analysis tools, and other calculators. There's some awesome changes coming down the pipe with a lot to explore in terms of automation and energy modeling. And I'll take that up in more detail in season four, where we'll talk about the challenges, the breakthroughs, and the limitations of automation, and how crucial it is that building science is baked in, so there's minimal unintended consequences. My guest today, Jesse Hitchcock, is no stranger to the words disruptor and innovator, although she likes to use other words to describe what she does. Her work is centered on energy efficiency programs and policies, decarbonization, transportation, electrification, energy equity, and utility regulation. She's also passionate about engaged democracy as founder of the Young Voters of PEI and a director of Springtide, an NGO leading the Charter Challenge for Fair Voting. Jessie brings her extensive knowledge of government institutions to push for innovative public policy and regulatory frameworks that address the real-world problems of climate change, housing affordability, and civic engagement. She's passionate about building communities that are sustainable and supportive, and she knows the value of breaking down silos to develop solutions that have people at their core. It's all about the humans in the system, after all. Welcome to the show, Jesse. So, you know my first question? It's going to be, how do we facilitate change across a sprawling, siloed, and fragmented industry like home construction? <laughs> Thanks for having me and kicking it off with that uh, very simple question. Um, I, I don't have an answer, obviously, to that question. But I think one thing I was thinking about when we um, went through your essay and when I was thinking about this topic is really needing to overcome this uh, idea that there's going to be one solution to this challenge that we're facing. I think there's a lot of competition. Um, previously, when I worked in the tech space, it was a lot of, you know, our solution is better than your solution or which thing is going to be the silver bullet to get us where we need to go. And I think the reality is that um, nothing is. And so we need to work together and not just compete across ideas. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think we we and we're still seeing that in a lot of different parts of the industry where there's proprietary solutions to something, 
and uh, definitely have seen the uh, you know the silver bullet. Either it's um, a any kind of proprietary system, whether it's a SIP panel or an ICF form or spray foam. You know, they I mean there's a whole there's a whole business model built around franchising materials and methods. So um, it's something that people in the industry are somewhat familiar with and uh, and it leads to a lot of I think missed opportunities really yeah and, and one thing that's interesting too is that you know you it almost makes sense when you're thinking about you know a, a one type of product or one type of technology solution that there would be competition within um, the different implementers or, or folks that are working in those spaces but I also feel like we have competition just in the kind of decarbonization climate sector more broadly um, you know, some folks will say energy efficiency is the only way to hit our targets and get ready to go. And other folks will say, no, it's electrification. Other folks will say, no, it's technology. And it's funny that, that we're in this space and that's still the mentality that there's just going to be one solution. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that I find really problematic because once you see a, a, a bigger picture, it's like you can't go back to... One implication of one aspect of the problem. I mean, the problem is we need to decarbonize. We need to make people's lives easier. We need to support and protect those who don't have as much as others in, in society. We need to have equity, diversity. We, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to have in life and not just one single thing like energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is mm, just such a, a tiny aspect. But if you look at, um, you know, talking to people about why they love their houses after they've had energy conservation measures carried out, it's because they're more comfortable, they're quieter, they feel more healthy. You know, like, like there's a lot of things that shake out that are very important to people's values. Yeah. And I think, I think getting at that you know, this equity piece or this health and comfort piece is often an afterthought in our program. We're, you know, we're first trying to save energy or we're first trying to implement a new program. And then second, we add this layer of, okay, well, you know, can we reach disadvantaged communities? Can we reach um, folks who have been marginalized or previously not included in our program? Um, but I think the reality is that if you start there and if you start with equity that will only make your program more successful uh, and if your programs are more successful then we're going to be you know on our way to our decarbonization goals more quickly like you said you know if, if if you do engage with people in a way that makes them feel comfortable and valued um then they're going to go tell other people and if you have trade allies that are um active participants in your programs and you treat them well and you engage with them and teach them and they're only going to go out into their communities and increase uptake there as well. So it, it feels like a, a win-win, but something that we're kind of missing the boat on. Yeah, I think when we talk about all these different factors, there's a whole swath of folks whose eyes just glaze over and go, I can't even, this is too much. Um, I just want to do a job. I want to do my job well, and I don't care about all of this other stuff because it is too overwhelming and I can't, I can't wrap my head around everything. And then there's, you know, people like me who wrap their head around everything and then try and stuff it all into one sentence. And it doesn't actually, you know, <laughs> it's a hard go sometimes. <laughs> yeah. There's so much process in our, in our industry. Um, you know, there's there's bureaucracy, there's policy, there's you know the the, the politics of it. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes I just you know I, I'm a process nerd. I love regulation. I think it's great to be you know prudent with the way we use money. Good. But sometimes I just want to throw all of that out the window and just you know use a totally different lens. What does it just mean to be a person in community or like a human on Earth? And what should we do? Uh, and how would we do things differently if, if that's the way we were thinking about it? You know, if money was no object and these were just the goals we wanted to achieve, what would we do? 
Um, and then like working backwards from there instead of, you know, what we're doing now, which is this very micro silo approach, starting with a really, really niche application. Mm-hmm. So in your experience, because I know that you you want to talk a little bit about the the, the work that you've done that's been like, working with innovators and disruptors, I think that would be really a good piece to to add into this conversation. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, previously I worked for a technology company who who was doing virtual energy audits, so using machine learning to try to model energy consumption in a building, uh, and they were they were aiming to do that in a way that was as accurate as a walkthrough audit. And I think the part that excited me about that opportunity was that I knew that we were struggling with this lack of scale and energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want to do audits, of course, because we want to know what the building needs and we want this, you know, building-specific approach that's really, really important, as you obviously know. But it's it's tough. We've seen it even lately with our greener home programs in Canada, there's a long wait. I was just trying to help my neighbor out. Uh, he asked me for help trying to navigate the application process. And so I was working with him to get an audit scheduled and it's months and months and months out. So mm-hmm. I think in addition to kind of training more auditors and getting more folks into the good job to do the audit, we can also look at a technology addition to help figure out maybe there are some buildings that it's easy to determine what they need uh, and we can kind of put them in a different bucket than the company, mm-hmm. than the than the customers that will benefit from an on-site audit. So that's what really excited me about it. Um, I think that there's there's definitely a role for technology I, disruption in that sense. You know, that was something that always kind of created conflict. I think folks felt like, oh, well, technology is coming to take away these good, awesome jobs and energy efficiency. And um, which to me, that's that did not resonate. But I I think what it is more about is using technology to find the right people um, Mm -hmm. and then making our work go further with the folks that actually need it. Right. Um, Right. Because not everybody's. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely feel that's really important to make that, that clear designate or delineation is that there's a whole raft of houses out there for whom energy efficiency measures or, or equipment is sufficient. It's what is needed. Um, it's what can be done, but then there's a whole raft of houses that require energy conservation, right? They're deeper, they're bigger yeah. projects, and and to to basically create. I mean, I've, I've been on this band, bandwagon or soapbox, I guess, <laughs> uh, for several years now that we need to look at streams of renovations. Um, we can do a bunch of um, preliminary work that a virtual audit. Or a vetting process. I don't know, you know, how in my world, it's a vetting process. That house, yes. That house, no. This one goes in stream A. This house goes in stream B. We can look at house types. We can look at vintages um, and know a bunch of stuff about those buildings, about what we could do, what it's likely to have as issues because of its vintage, and then what we... Um, the the problems we're likely to bump up against in terms of what and how we can um, improve the uh, the building envelope versus just changing up the mechanical systems. And I think yeah. that's where the virtual audit piece comes in is to actually create streams. So like like use it as a um, basically as triage. Yeah, that's what I that's the word I always like to use. And in addition, you can you can also build this equity piece onto that as well. You know, I, I like, I don't think that we ever really got there. We haven't got there yet, but I, I like the idea of as an industry being proactive about this. You know, we're very, we're going to wait for homeowners or customers to come to us and apply for programs. Um, but you, you miss a lot of people. You leave a lot of people behind in that way. So I like the idea of, they're using some sort of technology at scale to get a sense of all the things you mentioned. Who are going to be competitive? And then layering on who, who needs it? Like what communities are struggling here? Who's struggling with air quality? Um, right. You know, in California, I know it's not a Canadian example, but they have a pretty good sense of that. You know, they, they've noted disadvantaged communities and it's based on a bunch of metrics and, and one of them is, is air quality. And I like the idea of, of going to those communities first, you know, with a plan. Um, mm-hmm. 
instead of this kind of black box of, you know, how can we create advertisements that will make it so they see this and come to us? And why don't you flip that on its head? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and that, that's a great, that's a great, yes, absolutely. Yes, please. Let's do it. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, there's a great program that is happening in Bridgewater. So I'm, I, you probably know about the Smart City Challenge. Um, yeah. A nice chunk of money that came to Bridgewater over, I think, the five or 10 year program. And they are looking within their community um, to relieve energy poverty with mm-hmm. through um, uh, retrofits. And yeah, that, exactly. That's yeah. the lens that they're using, which is far more equitable than, um, oh, well, we'll look at uh, a broad swath of houses that are like this or in this neighborhood. Yeah. It's more like we're, we're pinpointing those in the community who are at most risk and and doing something for them that is supported by the broader community. Yeah, I think it's getting getting past the, you know, this equity, equality graphic you can probably think of. The one I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but the one with yeah, the fence and the baseball field. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I heard a good analogy recently that was saying that there's actually needs to be another box. Um, and the person, but the person uh, there doesn't need a second box. What they need is like a ramp to get onto the box. So this, this right. idea, what we're talking about is you can just give out boxes, even if you're okay with the fact of some people need two boxes, some people need one box and some zero. Some people also need other things uh, to, so, to support them. And right. So, but this gets back to your original challenge of like, this is all so big um, and it's just easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's layers upon layers upon layers and intricacies upon inter- intricacies because you can talk it, you can talk it about equity at a broader societal level, but then you can also move that into what is, what does it look like? Um, you know, what does an equitable uh, industry look like? Yeah. How do you, and then how do you parse through yeah. that piece? Well, I just went to an amazing talk at a conference, but I was at the week um, and they put up some stats on the board about the energy industry uh, and the percentage of it that is white and male. And um, yeah, <laughs> it goes without saying, but there's not a lot of diversity in our industry. Uh, and then that makes it challenging to apply that lens when you don't have people with that lived experience at the table. Um, I, the person who was giving the talk, her name is Quinn Parker. She her, she started a company called N Color. She, she's really, really great. She's been in the utility industry for a long time. And she also worked for Clear Resolve, I think. Um, and she she had a really great suggestion. And you might have thoughts on this, Sean, because I know you've worked in this space more than I have. But her, her commentary was that for for vendors like um, small small tradespeople who have these little kind of um, you know one one person shows or maybe a handful of people, a big source of their revenue as a company and then as a students are coming from these energy efficiency programs that we're running as an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but then one of the things that we do is give them you know ninety day payment terms. And so we're really, you know, impacting their ability to kind of feel financial comfort and security in their, in their lives and in their businesses. Um, and she was talking about how, you know, one simple thing that you can do for your trade allies is just pay them, <laughs> you know, pay them quickly, give them the money now, you know, not in, mm-hmm. not in 90 days. And I thought that was a really interesting point, just, you know, building these relationships in a way that you're actually considering those people's livelihood. Yeah, I think that's, that's. Um, I can add my own little anecdote in here was I was working with, um, through Enercan, on, I was subcontracting on a large uh, longitudinal study that was done by, uh, carried out by a large national, maybe multinational, I don't remember. It was an engineering firm, not an energy firm. And uh, I was subcontracted to a bunch of QA on a bunch of files and I submitted my invoice and they paid me 120 days later, which is when they got in their bookkeeping. It was when they got paid via the contribution agreement. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but I'm out here trying to raise my kids and feed them. Put gas in my car. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things where there's all this process around it. You know, I previously worked on the government side with delivering energy efficiency programs. There's all these contribution agreements and contracts and timelines. And it all, you know, seems to make sense if you don't stop to think about it. I will say that, right? You're, you're, you're like, yes, this ends with me. Like, my last task is to send the, the, the request to finance. And then you walk away. Um, but like what about what happens next in that chain of events and the actual human person who's on the other end trying to pay their bill do you want to talk a little bit about what a circular economy would look like yeah i mean i think this is one of those topics that i'm definitely not an expert in but i when i think about that i think about this whole idea of just thinking about all of the pieces you know I don't want to say it's a of the supply chain, but you know, all of the different players that are involved and then trying to think of them as actual humans. Again, the theme of this episode, but you know, who are all the people that are involved from point A to point Z and what, who are they and what do they actually need in their lives? And so you can think about that first and then think about, you know, okay, well, where are they sourcing their employees? And who are those people and what what type of training do they need? And then, you know, where are the materials coming from? Is there a way we can do that better? Um, But I I like to think about it starting with the actual people and then going from there, which is sort of, yeah, we often, I think, start with the thing. Right. We have a goal. We have a target. It is hit this energy reduction target or this carbon reduction target. Yeah, and we were like, what measures do we need to do that this time frame? Uh, you don't only need measures, you also need, you know, people and trade partners and all of these other moving pieces. Yeah, I think one of the things that really excites me about um, the work that I'm doing in in the uh, attempts to upscale, or up, not upscale, but scale up retrofits so that they're not just one off. Um, but we can look at panelization and we can look at a more of a, a push into the energy sprung thing is that we can actually create a much tighter local economic development model. Yeah, where we could look at small rural municipalities and say, well, we have a plan where we could actually, and this is based on, the, on thinking through for humans, right? We want to improve, we want to decrease energy pro- poverty, we want to improve and the uh, the quality of life that people have within their own homes, but if we and we, if we do that with renovations that take houses into deep energy retrofit territory and you use panelization, then we actually can pull people who maybe are underemployed or have a skill set that needs to be um, moved into a different industry because there's a sunsetted, and we can actually do a, a, a far more circular economy because the money stays in the um, stays in the community. You can't really outsource this kind of, of of work. And the closer you can stay within that community, the more you can actually keep money in the community and and build up more smaller sort of satellite pieces of that of that deep energy retrofit industry. Yeah, I, I love the, that model and that the approach that you take to this. Because one thing that I juggle with um, when I think about technology is that when we when we say scale, we often are talking about you know every person on the globe or like mm-hmm. every person in North America. Like you're Google, you're gonna you're gonna reach everybody. Uh, right. But I don't I don't think in our faith that that's what scale should mean. And I like the idea of taking a community level approach and maybe what you scale is not a solution that's going to work for every community because I don't think that that necessarily exists. What you can scale is a, is a way to train and engage and build up that community to fill those roles. And then that might look different for every different community. Right. But, but you, you could, you could you have replicate the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. So you created an ecosystem. And I love the fact that you said that word because we have a broken ecosystem when it comes to to renovations and deep energy retrofits. And part of that is based on the fact that we actually don't have a clear energy conservation or 
dedicated weatherization industry in this country. Yeah. We have energy advisors who can either do new houses or existing houses. Some can do both. Um, they give recommendations and then what? Exactly. There's that like, their piece of the chain has ended. Uh -huh. And yeah. then the next chain starts, which is the contractor trade ally. Uh, yeah. And we have, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get, we've got a, a, a diminishing labor force. And to your statement earlier, there's a whole raft of, of able-bodied white men who are moving out of the industry or not coming into the industry. Um, but it really, we, you know, the more that we can expand um, the, the pool that we can pull that labor force from, the better. Yeah, 100%. I, I think you mentioned in the intro, I've been working in electric transportation lately, which is, you know, definitely a departure from what we're talking about right now. But there is an awesome group who is who has kind of taken this approach um, called Charger Help. And I love their model because they're developing this ecosystem of trained people that can service um, charging equipment. Because we mm -hmm. this is another example where we've kind of ended the supply the line we've ended the the chain we're like yep we installed the charger and we right. leave and right. then what happens and you know we know we have a problem with reliability of charging infrastructure we know that that's a factor in you know range anxiety and, and people choosing to make the switch to electric transportation um but there's this gap and so they've taken an approach similar to what you're mentioning is you know building up creating resources to train and build up communities um of folks that can start good paying jobs maintaining this infrastructure uh, and mm -hmm. it's different it's different in every place but they they're scaling like the way of building up that ecosystem which i just think is really great yeah and i think yeah we've we've, we've gone to this this idea that when you say scale up it needs to be as big as possible but there's a whole raft of very well established research that's like basically there's this there's a scale for it for entities and ecosystems, and you can't push them past that because that leads to failure. And some things are, you know, right-sized. Um, thinking back to the the classic um, book by the author's name, I can't remember the book I can remember. It's called uh, Small is Beautiful. I think it's from like the 1970s. It was an economist who was like, you know, you don't actually have to capture the worldwide market on this, you could be, uh, maybe there's a scale that works that is only in this municipality, or maybe it's this province, or maybe it's Atlantic Canada. It doesn't have to be the, uh, like you said earlier, there's no silver bullet. So why would we expect that we would have one model that suits every single permutation of people living in community? Yeah, exactly. And it's more just about you know, creating, I don't, I don't know that we have this yet, but trying to create a way of approaching the problem at the community scale, a way of thinking about them, a way of accessing resources, like knowing where to start, um, mm -hmm. who, whoever's going to be you know, the orchestrator at the community level needs to have some support to figure out what to do, but then what they do might look different for everyone. One of the things I think is really important is to recognize that there are very, very different approaches to take when you're talking about either a large city, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, et cetera, and how that city has uh, significant resources in terms of people and funding um, and lending opportunities or, or um, versus a small rural municipality. So this is the big thing for me is there's about 5,500 municipalities and districts and various other permutations in Canada. There are 100 of them that have more than 100,000 people in them. I think those are the right stats. So we focus so much effort and, and importance on those large urban centers, they make up about 50% of the population. So 50% of the population is not in a large metropolis and 
doesn't ha- is is in a place that doesn't have those resources. So again, we come back to now we have an opportunity in a small way to actually make a significant impact on 50% of the population. I think that's worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, you know, this, this urban rural challenge in Canada is one that extends to every sector. It's definitely not unique to, to ours, but in some ways, I think this is another example of how we have to think about things at the community level, but also we need to think outside of our silo because Mm-hmm. You can develop solutions for a rural community that are, you know, about the building stock, which is great. And you're solving a problem there. But another problem might be that that community, uh, that part of the grid is really not reliable and they have a lot of outages. Right. Or maybe right. another part of the problem is that uh, it's really not connected to any other infrastructure in the province. So they need to have a car because maybe they can't even walk to a grocery store and they certainly can't get into the city, you know, for medical appointments very easily without one car, maybe two. Um, And so there's all these pieces. And if we just, you know, end our part of the journey with, yep, okay, well, we fix the building stock and then we leave, that's not the whole picture either. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other pieces that that comes into play there too is, you know, in terms of innovation and, and disruption is looking at who lives there. What are the demographics of who lives there? So are you talking about a community that's had a drain of young people away? Um, Because then there's a whole different range of things that you would want to add into the mix of what you offer to make houses more comfortable, which is a whole range of making the buildings user-friendly and barrier-free. So they stay in their buildings in their homes for longer, and that takes a, a, a a load off the societal requirement to have long-term care homes or as many. 100%. And, you know, taking it even another level, as we know in the Maritime, there are lots of rural communities without reliable access to the internet. So if we go back to just engaging people in our efforts, we want them to take advantage of all these great things we're trying to offer. You know, if, if your solution is like a digital first technology, is that really going to work in a community like that? Right. Ironically, both of us yeah. are um, <clears throat> talking without our videos, a video camera yeah. on over Zoom because we have shitty connection. <laughs> yeah. And we're about to be hit with a tropical storm that's going to impact a ton of people in our province because our power will go out. Yep. Um, probably very quickly here. I don't know what your temperature is in the house right now. Yours is more well insulated than mine, but I rent and it's drafty in here. And mm-hmm. it's going to be another reminder of how much resilience we don't have. Yeah. And I hate saying that. And I will be happy if Fiona swerves off to sea and doesn't come to visit us. Yes, you and me both. So this is going to be a shorter version um, than usual because I have this this essay that I'm I'm writing in French. So is there something that you would like to uh, to discuss in terms of the, the innovation and disruptor piece? I mean, I think we touched on touched on it in terms of the, the role of innovation and, and disruption. I think I don't like I, I've said this, but I don't I don't really like the idea of disruption. I think Maybe like evolution or something is more is more appropriate, but disruption I I, I feel it has a a bad connotation. Um, but that said, I do love the idea of just turning everything on its head and thinking about how to do things differently. So maybe that is maybe that is disruptive. Well, there was a really disruptive for sure. <clears throat> evolution yeah. through disruption. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess that's the connotation with this. And I think it comes back to jobs, honestly, you know, and, and technology mm-hmm. and the dichotomy. So I don't think that it needs to look like every job being, you know, replaced or disrupted. I think we can use technology to let the human do what humans are good at doing. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't want people to be worried, you know, that mm-hmm. technology is, is bad. Um, yeah. But I, but I do like this idea of something that 
something that I I learned recently or a, a way of thinking that I learned recently that that I really like and I'm I struggle to do it so maybe you'll have thoughts but there's this whole concept of when we move forward with a new technology or we you know have some sort of new opportunity to scale and do a new place or on a new problem we often just take the same steps so we do the same thing but with whatever new technology we're thinking about so an example of you know i'll use transportation again we're talking about totally overhauling our transportation industry driving with electricity instead of with gas mm-hmm. that's pretty nuts but when we think about what that looks like we just envision the world exactly like it is now but all of the cars are electric right. but maybe we still have two cars per household we still commute to work every day we still you know, we do everything exactly the same, except that the technology has changed. And I don't right. think that so, that's the way to do it. You know, I think this is, these are opportunities to totally mm-hmm. rethink everything. Yeah. But we're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, you know, great, great. We've electrified our whole transportation system. So now we're not dealing with carbon uh, <clears throat> emissions and, and pollution from from. Uh, internal combustion engines, but now yeah, we have yeah. a bigger, you know, we've got a, a different issue that's at the same scale, which is mining of um, precious metals and rare metals. And then what do we do with all the waste and the electronics and, um, you know, the, so there's there's a whole raft of other problems that don't go away. There we have this, the, the supply chain issues and then we have disposal issues. Um, that don't change. So, yeah. yeah. If we take the example of, you know, retrofit, so say, you know, we wake up and we've had, we have a ma- miraculously, you know, all the buildings have been retrofitted passive with amazing panels that we somehow created at a scale that was necessary, but then we don't do anything else. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we build equally as kind of like needlessly large buildings and we keep them sprawled out and not connected to the places that they might need to go. People can't move freely we, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know we 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 have to rethink how communities are structured and it would be better undoubtedly don't get me wrong if you know the houses in those communities were comfortable and safe but that's not the end of the the conversation yeah i think there's there's more evolution to be had in those conversations but first of all we need to to deal with the here and now and that's where we you know we often just get absolutely bogged down in the here and now. Obviously, there, you know, when we have crises, that's where we stay. I think there's this idea as well about, you know, there's what, what's the saying, cliche, like, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I think mm-hmm. you could easily listen to this conversation and take away from it that, well, we don't have something that will address all of these problems. The problems are too big. So... Since there isn't a solution that will do all of these things, then mm-hmm. it's not possible. Yeah, every single, every single tiny, small innovation moves us forward in different ways. So I think it's really important to not get, get bogged down in the, the overwhelmingness of it all. Because it's easy. I mean, I get, you know, I was catatonic for about a month after... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I had this realization of uh, it's all connected. Ah, oh, I know. I, I was saying to my coworker today, I I toggle between being depressed and motivated, yeah. and I don't know <laughs> which one of those comes <laughs> out as the most prominent uh, feeling. But um, yeah, there there one one thing I will say that I took away from working at a, at a tech startup is that you know there there needs to be room to to try and to like play around and to fail and Mm -hmm. you know like fail but fail quickly and I think that is a learning that you know I think we can we can take forward whether it's government programs utility programs any of these kind of big (laughs) big 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 organizations that are in this space I think you know like small vendors know you know um that we have to try things and we have to be nimble and we need that opportunity in all sectors, I think. Yeah. And then again, let's not just do the same thing we've always done um, or or try the same thing again and again and again after seeing how things have failed in the past and learning lessons, you know, 
moving forward. Yeah. What's that word yeah, you use? Evolution. I like it. Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. <laughs> well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, and having this great conversation about my meandering essay and uh, and what we can do. So we will have you on board again to talk more about other stuff. Yeah, sure thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, all right. We, we definitely can. Thank you. So that's today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Music.